And, you know, when you're self-employed and the phone rings, you're always praying it's the next job, hopefully. And so uh, when Don Devan called me a second time, I thought, aha, another project. And he said, well, not exactly. And I said, uh, okay, what's up? And he goes, well, what do you know about the Shroud of Turin? And I laughed. I said, Don, I'm Jewish. <laughs> and Don laughed and said, so am I, remember? I was invited onto the STERP team by one of the other Jewish guys who were on the team as an imaging scientist. And there were three of us on their team. Dr. Alan Adler was the blood chemist who was on our team, world-renowned blood chemist. So um, he said, look, uh, we're putting a team together. We're going to need a photographer. Uh, we're going to need a lot of photographers, actually. And he said, we, we know that, you know, we know you have the technical competence to do this. Are you interested in joining this team? And I said, no, no, no. What's happening? What's up? Hold out your glass because we're about to fill it up. Welcome to the Prometheus Lens Podcast. I'm your host, Justin. I'm an independent researcher and podcaster, and you may know me from my works with the Dig Bible Podcast. Here we like to use the allegory of the Prometheus Lens just to re-examine everything. So how many of you guys have heard of the Shroud of Turin? This is the supposed burial cloth of Jesus Christ. And this is the most studied artifact ever found. And I know what some may be thinking. Now, this thing has ties to the Roman Catholic Church. I smell foul play here. But those who have taken the time and look into this cloth, I mean, it's just amazing at all the information that is in this thing. You know, it's even quoted as being not an artifact, but a document. But I got to sit down with Barry Schwartz. Barry Schwartz was the lead photographer and investigator of the Shroud conducted in the 1970s. He actually went in as a skeptic. I didn't know this before, but he was Jewish. He was, he, he was a skeptic and a non-believer. And after all his investigation was done, he said, this is the burial cloth of Jesus Christ. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the journey, guys. In the distance looms a mystical mountain. At its peak, a great fire burns, concealing the Prometheus lens, an ancient artifact said to reveal the hidden truth within a deliberately darkened world. Join us as we travel and explore the vast unknown. It's a hero's journey with dragons to slay, damsels to save, and innumerable treasures to hoard. Torches high. The Smithsonian, they'd call wind of a giant skeleton. They would send their agents out to get it. But it takes courage to move forward, to move out of the shadows, out of the uh, unreality that we think of as reality. Truth gets marginalized. And sometimes you have to look on the margins for the truth. We are all on the hero's journey. You know, look at it from a different perspective. A different perspective. A different perspective. All right, welcome back to another episode of Prometheus Lens. Uh, I was scouring the internet one day when I was on vacation with the family in New York, and I was just looking for interesting topics. I'm always doing that. 
And then uh, I stumbled across the Shroud of Turin. Now, I've heard, you know, lots of stories about the Shroud of Turin, and I've heard uh, Trey Smith and some other guys, you know, do little talks about it. And I always thought it was really fascinating. But uh, call it a God thing, but uh, I listened to this episode. It was like three hours long, and this guy just went into depth about, you know, all the proofs that was in the Shroud, and it was just a really mind-blowing thing. And I always carry my notepad and stuff with me everywhere. I'm a big nerd like that. So I ended up taking like six pages of notes, and then I was like, I have to talk to this gentleman. So I found him on the website and reached out and emailed him. After a couple of emails, I get an email back. And this guy's like, you know, I can try to get Father Andrew to talk to you, but uh, I, I know I'm available, and I'm actually his teacher. I'm the one that taught him. And I was like, that's even better. Awesome. So uh, I reached out to this gentleman, and he was more than willing to come sit down and talk with us today and explain all this mind-blowing stuff with this, uh, this piece of fabric. Um, but his name is Barry Schwartz. Uh, Schwartz began his professional photography career upon graduating Brooks Institute of Photography in 1971. Barry was the official documenting photographer for the Shroud of Turin Research Project, the team that conducted the first in-depth scientific examination of the Shroud in 1978. Today, he plays an influential role in Shroud Research as the editor and publisher of the internationally recognized Shroud of Turin website, the Shroud, or sorry, Shroud.com the largest and most extensive shroud resource on the internet. With visitors more than 160 countries, Swartz has conducted shroud lectures around the world and is frequently called upon as a leading imaging expert. He has participated in programs on the History Channel, Discovery Channel, Learning Channel, CNN, CBS, NBC, PBS, and BBC, (laughs) and Vatican Radio. Shoo! His, his uh, photographs have appeared in hundreds of books and publications, including Time Life, Newsweek, National Geographic, and countless television documentaries. So, guys, this is a, a man that's got more than 10,000-plus hours and got a lot of information for you, and we're very privileged to have him on the show. So, uh, Barry Schwartz, thank you for coming today. Justin, thank you for the invitation. I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. Now, I tell you, I, thought I should have had me a glass of water. That was a mouthful. <laughs> well, you read more than I would have recommended, but that's nice. That's fine. I, I cut off halfway through. I still had two more pages. Yeah, I know. You're very accomplished well, man. I have a, I have a one-paragraph short bio. I should have sent that one to you. Yeah. <laughs> that's okay. Well, uh, Barry, give us just you know a little bit of background. How did uh, you come in contact with the Shroud? And just give us a little uh, context for the background. Okay. So uh, back in the 70s, uh, I lived in Santa Barbara, California, and I operated a commercial photographic studio. Um, and I did, you know, everything from advertising to uh, a lot of technical things, worked in the aerospace industry, worked in the medical field. So I became known pretty much, uh, I think my reputation was as a guy who really had good technical skills. Well, I was contracted by a local company uh, that were ima- an imaging company that was a contractor to Los Alamos National Laboratory in New Mexico. And uh, that project had to do with atomic bombs, which is one of the things they're most famous for. And so uh, basically they needed somebody with photographic skills and a darkroom skills because they were getting new information from old unclassified above-ground atomic explosion motion pictures of mushroom clouds, 
but they had a Cray, a couple of Cray computers over there, and they were able to get new data out of those old unclassified films. And they, but in those days, we didn't have a print screen button. When you, <laughs> when you wanted something off the screen, you set up a camera and you photographed it off the screen. I didn't have a high enough security clearance to be in the room with that Cray computer. So the gentleman I work with is an imaging scientist. I had to give him the camera, the lens, the film, the exposures, the filtration. He would go and he would shoot a bunch of film and bring it back and I'd process it and we'd evaluate it. And uh, if he didn't get it right, he went back the next week and did. And we did this for seven months. And at the end of seven months, we created a book, five copies of a single book with all these images where I had to superimpose kilometer scales on top of the mushroom cloud. Think about this. It'd be a piece of cake to do that today in Photoshop. Mm -hmm. There was no Photoshop. I had to do an analog in the dark room. So it took seven months. At the end of that seven months, we finished. And I thought, well, that was an interesting project. The guy I worked with, a guy named Don Devan, was the imaging scientist. And I don't know, just a few weeks later after we finished, he called again. And, you know, when you're self-employed and the phone rings, you're always praying it's the next job, hopefully. And so uh, when Don Devan called me a second time, I thought, aha, another project. And he said, well, not exactly. And I said, uh, okay, what's up? And he goes, well, what do you know about the Shroud of Turin? And I laughed. I said, but Don, I'm Jewish. <laughs> and Don laughed and said, so am I, remember? <laughs> so I was invited onto the STERP team by one of the other Jewish guys who were on the team as an imaging scientist. And there were three of us on their team. Dr. Alan Adler was the blood chemist who was on our team, world-renowned blood chemist. So um, he said, look, uh, we're putting a team together. We're going to need a photographer. Uh, we're going to need a lot of photographers, actually. And he said, we, we know that, you know, we know you have the technical competence to do this. Are you interested in joining this team? And I said, no, because I, I didn't feel comfortable. I thought, you know, I didn't want to get involved in something beyond my scope. Uh, I didn't have any experience in it. I didn't want to, you know, open my mouth and maybe say something that would be inappropriate. I didn't want to offend anybody. So I said, no, but he said, well, before you decide, let me send you some literature. And he, so he said, and there was no science that had been done on the Shroud at that moment in time. Very little, a few things from Europe in the early part of the 20th century, but that was about it. And he sent me the literature and they were mostly religious tracts from the Holy Shroud Guild, exactly the thing that was keeping me from wanting to get involved in the first place. But then I started thinking about it, and because he was an imaging scientist and he knew that I was technically competent, he said to me, we have determined that there is a correlation between the image density on the shroud and the distance between the cloth and the body. Well, I knew I couldn't do that photographically. In a photograph, I can imply depth and shape and form by using highlights and shadows, but I'm not encoding any distance information into my film or into my negative. So I knew that was a unique property. And so I thought, well, now how is that possible unless the cloth came in contact with a body? That's the only logical way that could happen. And then I started thinking about it and realized um, free trip to Italy. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> and so I said, oh, what the heck? I, I guess I'll go and do this. And so I joined the team, not expecting that 45 years later, I'd be sitting here being interviewed and still dealing with the shroud. Matter of fact, that's all I deal with anymore. 
Uh, 13 years ago, I formed our nonprofit, Trout Attorney Education and Research Association, and retired from my photography and video work. And now I work 24-7 doing just the Shroud. Of course, the website, shroud.com, is a, coming up on its 28th anniversary, 28 years old. So, And I do that by myself. Everybody thinks we have a big staff. You're looking at it. Yeah, that's what I would have assumed. Yeah, it, it, in all fairness, it's me and three cats, but they don't help very much. <laughs> so, so I, so I, yeah, so I went ahead and joined the team, but I was a skeptic, and I, I think I stupidly said at some media event, uh, "Well, you know, give us five minutes, and we'll get there, and we'll find the paint, and we'll come home, and that'll be the end of it." So I was really a skeptic, and because of my background. I didn't have any serious emotional attachment to Jesus other than as a human being uh, who suffered a horrible death for what he believed in. So for that alone, I could respect and love him, uh, even though I didn't see him as an object of my faith, as Christians would. So it's it's not something that we disrespect. I mean, he, after all, he was one of our guys anyway. So, yeah, you know, so I had no problem in in participating once I got involved. And, of course, it was a challenge from the first day to the last. We had to overcome obstacles literally three, four times a day. People don't understand how difficult it was. There were no precedents for what we did. No one had ever examined the shroud before. So it wasn't like we could go read some research papers of previous guys and see what they did and pick up where they left off. No, we had to start everything from scratch. Our work at the end of the examination of the shroud. We spent five days and nights in Turin with the shroud. We spent 17 or 18 months before we went planning everything and three years after we got back to evaluate everything. So for over about five years, we worked on this. And at the end of all that, our work was published in the highest quality independent peer-reviewed journals. And our work forms the primary database of peer-reviewed science based on direct physical examination of the shroud of Turin that exists. So that's the starting point for anybody who wants to study the shroud. You you need to see what we documented that's physically on that cloth, because based on that, you can then propose your theories, but you have to stay within the chemistry and physics that are documented on that cloth. There have been many attempts to duplicate the shroud. And of course, my photographs and many others are on the internet. So there's plenty of reference photographs. And yet no one no one, and I can assure you that I've looked at every one in the last 45 years, no one who's made something that looks like the shroud has come close to matching the chemistry and physics that are documented on that cloth. Well, let's so, get into like the history of it now. For those that's not familiar, where do we, we see first in history that this shroud had, had come up? And also, uh, so they're not confused, if I, if I don't have it confused, there, there's two pieces. There, there's a head cloth that's separate, but then the shroud, and that's the the, the right. overlying and, piece. Yeah, and that's actually mentioned in the Gospels. So let's talk about that just for a second. So even to this day, when somebody passes away, what's the first thing we do? We cover their face. That, I used to think maybe that was a, an early Jewish tradition, but I think it goes back far beyond that earlier on to the earliest days of mankind on this planet that when somebody passes we cover their face and so that's what they did with jesus when they took him off the cross they covered his head and that's you know we understand that they then took him to the tomb where they would remove that cloth 
And Jewish law says if it has the decedent's blood on it, it must be buried with the body. So they took it off and they folded it up and set it aside so that it could be eventually buried with the body. And then they began to prepare the body, wash the body, clean the body and prepare it to be placed into the shroud. Both cloths are mentioned in the Gospels. They mention that the face cloth or second cloth was folded and separate from the other. But the fact that it was in the tomb, when I read that passage in the New Testament, the first thing I thought was authentic Jewish burial. Because they wouldn't have preserved that bloody second cloth except for Jewish law, which says you must do so. So right off the bat, you know, we know that. Anyway, uh, the shroud would have then wrapped the body, uh, remembering also that they, the Jewish law says you can't work past sunset on Friday, beginning of the Sabbath. So there was a, a kind of a rush to prepare the body as quickly as they could and put them in the tomb. But the intention was to come back Sunday morning and finish because they did not have the appropriate time. So some of the things, for example, 100 pounds of spices were apparently brought to the tomb probably in jars or sacks or both. Um, and yet we didn't find any traces of those on the cloth, perhaps because they hadn't had time for that at that moment. And they were planning on finishing that Sunday morning. But, you know, we don't have any side images of the man of the shroud. And we know that the imaging process worked at a distance of about three to four centimeters. So think about those jars or, or sacks of, of uh, spices that were brought, perhaps they just placed them around the body just so they'd be handy and ready. And remember, those are there to keep the smell of decomposition down. That's what their purpose is. And so out of convenience, maybe they just placed them around the body. That would have lifted the shroud away from the sides of the body and possibly be the reason we don't have side images. So all of this that's on the shroud is in accord with the Gospels. It's 100% correct and accurate to what it says in the New Testament. And uh, when we look at the shroud, this is something viewers might not be familiar with. What's on the shroud is the ventral front and dorsal back image, full frontal, full dorsal image of a human figure who's been scourged. And he has scourge wounds not only on his back, the way artists have depicted it over the centuries, he has scourge wounds on the front of his body as well. And if you're standing behind somebody with a whip and you take a baby step closer and you hit that person, those thongs are going to come around. They're going to scar the front of the body. No artist has ever depicted that. But that's what we have on the shroud. So it's more accurate than any artist's depiction throughout Christian artists, uh, artistic history uh, as to what would really have occurred if somebody had been scourged. He has a spear wound in his side. He has blood-stained wounds, exit wounds in, from the uh, crucifixion nails in the hands and in the feet. And he has bloodstains covering his scalp from a cap or crown of thorns. Not a pretty little circle the way artists have depicted it. You know, that's artistic license. But imagine this, you're a first century Roman soldier. You're probably the lowest guy on the totem pole because you've got the nasty task of crucifying somebody. And they're not going to say, stop, let's weave a pretty crown and make this guy look good. They took a thorn bush and they smashed it onto his head. And so the scalp is covered with those wounds. And people have often said to me, well, why do you think this is Jesus? Couldn't it be anybody else? I say, you know, if I'm sure the Romans speared lots of people 
scourged lots of people, crucified lots of people. But in all of recorded history, we only know of one person who was crowned with a crown of thorns because he had proclaimed himself king of the Jews. So to further humiliate him, they said, oh, you're the king, eh? So here's your crown. And it would have just been added pain and torture to Jesus. And so what's on that shroud is more accurate than any artist's depiction of the crucifixion of Jesus that has ever been painted. But I tell you guys, this was a spiritual journey for me. As a Christian, you always hear about the cross and Jesus and just... You hear it so often from a, a child, it just gets beaten in your head. And to hear it described this way. It does something for me. But uh Yeah. They go on to describe some other things and it's just it's mind blowing to see the details of the passion of Christ. Are you a God-fearing, patriotic American or someone that just enjoys good coffee? I encourage you guys to check out the sponsor of the show, Kevlar Joe's Coffee Company. Veteran-owned, family man of God. When you're buying these big-name coffee brands, you don't know where your money's going and what it's going to support. Support a small business owner and a hard-nosed veteran. And honestly, when I listen to that, that podcast, I mean... I've grew up a Christian my whole life. I've heard these stories. And I know this sounds awful, but this is just me being open and honest. It's I'm like, yes, I know Jesus went to the cross and he died for my sins. Yes, I, I know that he was scourged. He put on the crown of thorns. But it's like you lose the significance, I guess, where it's you know told to you from such a young age and repeated. It, it loses, It's like there's a disconnect there. And then sure. when you read I mean, these it's, things it's and not actually see it, 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 it draws it, you in. It's not something we can easily relate to in the modern world. Well, we can't fathom this happening today. Although there are places where crucifixion still does happen uh, on this planet, but it's pretty rare. So, you know, when you look at it, uh, the reason that I've accepted that, and I've said this on, on a number of programs like this, you don't have to be a Christian to accept the historicity of Jesus and the events that, you know, the, the tortures that were applied to him. You, you don't need to be a Christian to accept that. Whether or not he was the prophesied Messiah, that's a separate issue. So I can 100% say that I believe that this is the cloth that wrapped the historical Jesus without having to make the decision, is he or is he not the prophesied Messiah? I leave that to the theologians. It's not my department. Right. And, and that way I'm just being honest. Look, you won't find many people who get up on camera like this and admit that they don't know something, but I'm honest. And if I don't know, I'm going to say, I don't know. And I think there's many things still about the shroud that we don't know. And, you know, we went and we spent those five days and nights, we spent a total of five years from beginning to end and examining this, our primary goal was to determine how the image was formed. That was it. Nothing else. We didn't try to prove it was Jesus or prove the resurrection or any of those things. We just wanted to know well, what forms the image. Is it a painting? Is it a scorch? Is it a photographically made image or a rubbing of some sort? Those were the 
popular ideas of what might have created this image on the shroud. So we went there with scientific tests designed to test to see if it was any of those things. And we were able to come back with the following results. A, it's not a painting. There's no paint pigments or binders anywhere on that cloth enough to be visible without a microscope. They are not responsible for the image. Uh, scorching it without getting too technical, we use something called ultraviolet fluorescence photography. And there are documented burns and scorches on the shroud from the 1532 fire. So those are, we know the exact date and time that fire occurred. So those are documented scorches, and they're definitely visible on the shroud. So we were able to photograph the, the shroud with UV fluorescence photography, and all the documented scorches fluoresced in the red. The background of the cloth itself fluoresced sort of a yellow-green. The image didn't fluoresce at all and quenched the background fluorescence. So the image on the shroud is not the property of a high temperature event because it would have, if it had been scorched onto the cloth, it would have fluoresced and we'd have said, oh, okay, that's the answer. That's not the answer. So we came back, even though we had that one question to answer, we came back unable to answer that question. We could tell you what it's not, not a painting, not a scorch, not a photograph. But we don't know of a mechanism, at least at this moment in history, that can create an image with the chemical and physical properties that are documented on that piece of cloth. And I heard on the, that episode that I had listened to, he said that, you know, that it, it would have took 34,000, I'm sorry, 34,000 billion watts of energy to recreate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was uh, from my friend Paolo de Lazaro in Rome. He's a, an expert in lasers. And so what he did was he used an excimer laser and he discolored the surface of a single fiber and got it to look pretty much like a image fiber of the shroud, although there was some damage to the primary cell wall, which we didn't see on the shroud images. So he got in the ballpark. So then he took that fact that he did one little thread and he multiplied that times the number of threads on the shroud to come up with that figure that you quoted. But that's not exactly, you know, what happened. Look, if there were that much of release of energy, Jerusalem would be a, a mild, deep hole. OK, uh, so and remember who the guys on our team were. They were from Los Alamos National Labs and Sandia National Labs and the Air Force Weapons Lab and the Jet Propulsion Lab. Okay, the guys at Sandia and Los Alamos know more about radiation than all the rest of us put together. They excluded radiation as one of the possible image formation mechanisms. They excluded it. And they also excluded light. And I can attest to that being a photographer and spending my career and my life in, in doing photography that I understand the um, characteristics of light. And I can assure you that there's plenty of reasons that I could point to if we were going to get technical where I can show you why light could not be the answer either. And another thing, too, you talk since we're on the subject of uh, how it was made and, and trying to recreate it. Yeah. Uh, another option, he said, was he was talking about uh, the depth of the image. He said, you know, 200 over 500 nanometers depth is the image. He said that's less right. than the, a half of a human hair. Correct. The, the image lies virtually is on the top surface fibrils of the fibers and not all of them either. 
which is why we can eliminate light. Because if I shine a light, it's going to, any place the light hits, it's going to, if that was the reason for discoloring the fibers, then wherever the light hit, you would see it. Yet on the photomicrographs, photographs taken through a microscope, uh, tip of the nose, one of the darkest parts of the image, you can see fibers that are darkened, that form the image, and adjacent to them are un uncolored fibers. So if it was light, light couldn't do that couldn't select one fiber from the what and not do the one next to it so i can i can use that as an example of why light isn't the answer and and yet at the same time um, we know of no mechanism now of course many christians say well of course that's the product of the resurrection and i always say look that's as possible as anything else but resurrection is a test of faith not a test for science and we can't go into a laboratory and resurrect somebody to see what kind of images we can make. So science has to stay within the observable and the measurable. Faith has no boundaries. So I've often said, and I'll say it again on your program, that if you look at the shroud and you believe that it's the product of the resurrection, so be it. But then don't ask science to try and explain that to you because science is limited. We cannot use an unknown the mechanism of resurrection, to prove another unknown, the image formation mechanism on the shroud. Science is limited. We have to stay within those boundaries, but faith doesn't. So I always tell people, look, is your faith so weak that you need science to support it? Then, then the problem is your faith. Go back and re-examine your faith. But what we know about the shroud is that from a purely scientific point of view, we the only correct answer to how that image was formed is we don't know. And That's just, being honest. And, and with just uh, and you don't have to call me if you don't want to, but you know, just postulating here, do, had sure. you ever thought about how maybe this could be done and, and maybe give an opinion on it? You know, uh, from a scientific point of view, yes, I believe there is still one theory that remains. Uh, somewhat untested, that would be a chemical reaction. That was proposed by the lead chemist on our team, Raymond Rogers, from Los Alamos National Laboratories, hardcore scientists. And so that, but he died before he could finish the work he was doing that might have helped us answer that question, is it possible that this is a chemical reaction? Right now, I, from a purely scientific point of view, believe that that's the best proposed mechanism, but it hasn't been tested far enough for us to make any claims for it other than it's possible. Which so, with me, uh, like you said, you know, we, we, you know, scientifically, we can't prove it until we have somebody resurrected in front of us and can actually have some data yeah, to test. But me, you know, and I can admit, I have my preconceived notions and, and my biases going in. As but, we all do. But reading the scripture i always thought when i first heard about this shroud you know like you were saying some people say you know that they take that as proof as the resurrection i was in that camp but the only facts you know or things that i had to reference back to was scripture and and i thought about uh, the transfiguration because you know well, it says that he transfigured and glowed and i was like if he was done that again and glowed well but nobody saw it so we really don't know if he glowed or not well, the, the apostles did. Well, that's the transfiguration, right? But yeah. the resurrection itself, what happened right. in that tomb, that's what we're, I, I have to stay within that because that's where we know the shroud was for sure. Right. Okay. So within the tomb, 
we don't know what happened. And, you know, I, I, I'm going to say this. I've, I say this from time to time as well. I don't believe the answer to faith is on that cloth. I believe the answer to faith is in the eyes and hearts of those who look on that cloth. Because Jesus said the kingdom of God is within us. I mean, or words to that effect. And I believe that that he was right, that that, that shroud is there. It's just a piece of cloth. But what does it mean to you? Well, each person who looks at it has to decide that for himself. And so I see the cloth not so much as the answer, but the thing that makes us ask the question in the first place. And so I see the shroud has great value both to people of faith and to those who are not of faith. That it points to something that from your beliefs obviously is miraculous and it may well be. I mean, science doesn't have a way of defining miracles. And, uh, you know, science has to stay sort of restricted within its own limitations. But people of faith can believe whatever they want. And I've, I've had people come up and say, well, you know, you're not going to convince me it was made scientifically. It's fine. I don't care. You know, it's like I'm not charging a buck for my opinion. <laughs> you know, it's like whatever. Uh, you believe what you want to believe. But if this piece of cloth, has some significance to you in your life, in the meaning of your life, and and the life that you lead, then it's worth it. You know, what more can you expect out of a piece of cloth? Well, moving along to, to 1988, after you guys did your investigation, you know, then that it made... Ten, yeah, ten, 88, 10 years later. Yeah, it came up and said uh, that it was a proven fake and it hit the headlines and, uh, it was bad testing and, and proven. And, uh, I think it was 2017. Was it that Oxford provided the results from the 88 that they were wrong? Yeah. Um, it, what happened was this. So they published their paper. And as soon as the paper was before it was even published, the results were leaked out. The Oxford lab, one of the three laboratories that were performing the radiocarbon dating Oxford in England, uh, Arizona, University of Arizona, Tucson, and uh, one up in uh, Switzerland. Those three labs, the Oxford lab was the, one of the primary labs. And as soon as the results were leaked, that they were going to call the shroud a fake, Oxford received one million pounds sterling, about two and a half million U.S. in 1988 for debunking the shroud. And then let There's me back up. There's some motivation, ain't it? Yeah, there's some motivation. And here, here's, and, and by the way, the money was anonymously donated, even more suspicious. So now here's the, the rub. When they selected the three labs, they selected a guy named Dr. Michael Tite of the British Museum to become the overseer of all three labs, the man in kind of overseeing the, the work. And so the British Museum became the, the holder of all the data after the testing was done. For 27 years, they either ignored or refused all requests to release the raw data. Now, that's unusual because once your paper's published, the reason you make your raw data available, the whole idea of science is repeatability. And if another scientist looks at your work and says, you know, I have the technology, let me repeat that and see what results I get. You need the raw data for that. For 27 years, they wouldn't give it up. So this French researcher, who happens to also be a law student, went to England and used the Freedom of Information Act and got the British Museum to release the raw data. And that's what you're talking about. 
Um, and then they took that. He that once he got the data, he went and got a top-notch shroud scholar and two other experts in anal that analyze data of this nature. And they published a paper in the journal Archaeometry, which happens to be an Oxford journal, interestingly enough. But the real irony is this. As soon as that money hit Oxford, Dr. Michael Tite resigned from the British Museum and went and took a permanent chair at Oxford. What a coincidence. And what a conflict of interest, because we didn't find out until decades later, he was in negotiation with Oxford before he was assigned the task of overseeing the labs, which means there was a, a, a blatant conflict of interest from the beginning. Well, all of this is now there. There are five peer-reviewed scientific journals that show that radiocarbon dating was wrong. When we looked at the raw data, what they determined was, first of all, they were throwing away a lot of their tests. Now, in science, we call that cooking the data, because if they kept those tests, they could never have reached the 95% certainty that they claimed in their work. So they were discarding these tests. And the other thing is the strip that was cut from which the sample was taken had one date at one end and hundreds of years later at the other end of that little strip that was maybe three or four inches in length. So where on that strip, which had a continuous change of dates throughout, where on that strip can you tell me is relevant to anywhere else on that cloth? You can't, not scientifically. And so here's the worst part. So because they didn't have a homogeneous sample, what they did was they averaged them all together to come up with their, their dates. That's bad science. And here's the worst part of the whole thing. When they took that sample, the whole thing might have been resolved if they had taken one more sample from somewhere far else away on that cloth as a, a control sample. They didn't do that. And so we now know that the radiocarbon dating was flawed, that it, they used a sample that was not representative of the main body of the cloth. If you look at my natural color photographs of that corner of the shroud in 1978, you can see that the strip that was cut is a different color than the rest of the shroud right next to it. So even in white light with your natural light and with your eyeballs, you could see there was something different about that strip. Why they chose that, only God knows. Now explain yeah. that. Now go into that how uh, the the new material and the, the hidden weave, and that, that yeah. was really mind-blowing too. Yeah, so uh, these two researchers, neither one of them scientists, although one of them was in the medical field and had experience in science. Um, in 2000, they presented a paper saying that, hey, the radiocarbon dating was correct. And we were all shocked until we listened a little uh, further. They said the only thing that was incorrect was the choice of the sample that they used, which was not representative of the main body of the cloth. And when it was examined up close, they found cotton interwoven with the linen, which is forbidden by Jewish law, by the way. It's called mixing of the kinds. Not allowed to do that, especially if a burial shroud of somebody of high stature. You know, if, if somebody is a, a beggar, maybe it's no big deal. But somebody like Jesus would have been given the finest cloth, obviously. And we know it came from a wealthy man uh, uh, delivered to... Who he already had a tomb too. Yeah, uh, Joseph, Joseph Arimathea. Yeah. So he already had a tomb. So he already had a shroud and he provided. He was wealthy. We don't know much about him, but in the Gospels, it does say he was a wealthy man. 
So at least we knew that he could afford a cloth of this nature. But typically, um, so they're pure linen. So when, when we analyze that, Ray Rogers, the chemist again, who I've mentioned before, received a section of the radiocarbon dating sample from Turin. And in it, he found cotton interwoven with the linen and a dye had been applied to the newer materials to match the color to the rest of the shroud. And he analyzed it and could tell us it was the rose matter dye from the matter root plant in a gum Arabic base. Chemistry told him that. And he chemically analyzed it. So that indicates that at some point, somebody had done a little repair work in that little corner. And it's right next to a seam. And if you cut into a woven cloth like this one, it starts to unravel. You have to reseam it. You have to sew it back so that it doesn't continue to unravel. And, and why did they interweave cotton and then color the cotton so that it would match the color of the rest of the shroud? It was a technique perfected in France called French invisible reweaving. And interestingly enough, at the time that that technique was perfected, where do you think the shroud was? France. What a coincidence. And if you have the shroud and it is in need of repairs and you have this technique that is superbly beautiful, virtually undetectable on either side, a technique designed originally to repair tapestries that were imaged on both sides. Because normally if you reweave something, the outside looks good, but the backside's got little threads hanging. No, can't do that. So a lot of people said no such thing as invisible reweaving even exists. People challenged it. And I, ha I have a book that I could show you. It's called Preserving a Dying Art Form, French Invisible Reweaving. So to say it doesn't exist just shows the level of ignorance. Um, and so obviously this was a logical repair that was made to preserve that cloth. And like I said, in my natural color photographs, you can see it was a different color. That's probably because the dye that was applied to try and match the color to the shroud. But over the centuries since that dye was applied, it aged differently than the rest of the shroud, and it got darker than the rest of the cloth. And you can see that in my white light photo. And the reason why that was torn, you guys, uh, I heard uh, Father Andrew theorize that, I think I heard him right, that there's actually like depictions in some cathedrals or, or in books or something of priests holding this cloth up by the oh, corners. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And so that corner has gotten lots of wear and tear. So, uh, you know, and I mean, they, they used to hang it from balconies and a hold. They had bishops holding it in the corners, pulling on it and stretching it. God only knows, you know, it's a it's a woven cloth. And because of the kind of weave it is, if you pull on it, it stretches. So when we photographed it in 78, when I made those photographs, we had to smooth that out very carefully, be, being careful not to stretch it and distort the image. Because by stretching it, you can actually skew the image somewhere. So we had to be very careful. So, you know, so the, the radiocarbon dating has now been debunked. It only took 30 years, but now people are finally, even the press is finally saying, well, they dated it, but it turns out that the sample they used was not valid. Hallelujah. It only took 30 years for the truth to come out about the radiocarbon dating. In the meantime, millions of people were misled to believe that this was some sort of fake. It's not. There are, of course, it's only been in Turin since uh, 1578, so we didn't call it the Shroud of Turin before then, but there are references to it going way back in history, and as soon as the carbon dating guys 
posted their dates, 1260 to 1390, some of us who knew about a, an illuminated manuscript in Hungary called the Hungarian Prey Codex, if you look at the Hungarian Prey Codex, it's just a small manuscript. The artist, probably a monk, tried to illustrate Jesus lying on the in the shroud being wrapped in a herringbone weave cloth, and they used a zigzag pattern to simulate the herringbone weave. And here's the rub, naked. Now, you look throughout Christian art, nobody shows Jesus naked. The artists have artistic license, and they always put a modesty cloth over his private areas. Not so on the shroud, not so on the prey codex. But more importantly than that, there's a set of L-shaped burn holes on the shroud when the shroud was folded in quarters and something dropped onto it, maybe hot coals or something, and burned these L-shaped holes four layers down. And those burn holes predate the 1532 fire because an artwork of the shroud from 1516, the artist included them. So we know they predate the fire. They were not from the 1532 fire that caused all the big damage. We That's see. what I was about to say is probably from that fire. That's how those, uh, smoke yeah. or burn lines are, are in the, the cloth. Well, right? interestingly enough, the, the monk who eliminated the prey codex included one of those L-shaped burn holes. That's not a coincidence. There'd be no reason for him to put that there unless he saw them with his own eyes. And that tells me that the carbon dating was wrong because the date of the prey manuscript is 1190. Which I'm not a fan of carbon dating anyway. It's been proven time and time again to be so inconsistent. They can test a bone from a dinosaur in two or three little different places the size of a quarter or a half dollar, and they get 10 different dates, and they can spread out thousands of years. It's a problem when you try to date something by the rock and minerals that's next to it, especially if you know and believe in the great flood all the waters burst forth from the abyss it threw up all this sediment and pushed plates apart and just you know reshuffled everything in the ground so i mean if you're testing ground around something to see the age of it you're always going to come up wrong so yeah just once again just i know that's all we have to go on right now is carbon dating we don't have a better method but this method has been proven very inconsistent to say the least What's going on, guys? Thanks for listening to the Prometheus Lens podcast. I asked if you've got anything out of this show so far and you're already subscribed, please share us with a friend. Give us a rating on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. That helps us to grow the show, get new listeners, but it also helps us get better guests. Because a lot of times I send out emails to people and they check us out. And if we don't have a lot of good ratings and things like that, they won't even bother emailing me back. So anything you guys can do to help, I appreciate it. And if you're not a member of our members only group i encourage you to do so there's a lot of extra content on there you get early access to episodes uh private chats uh early access to episodes members only videos and episodes it's a great community join the band of brothers on this hero's journey 70 years earlier than the earliest possible date so right away we knew something was not right here but i'm no physicist i'm not qualified to challenge three radiocarbon dating labs and so it's taken 30 years for the truth to come out. But thank God, the truth has finally come out. The radiocarbon dating of the Shroud of Turin did not date the Shroud. It dated a repaired corner. Now let's get into some of the, like the details, because now that the, 
that you guys had found that correlate and line up uh, with the the historicity of of Jesus. Uh, one of the things that I seen that was uh, really profound was it talked about the blood to water ratio matches someone who's suffering from lung edema. Yeah, that's someone severely uh, beaten. Yeah, if 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 you beat the heck out of somebody and scourge them, uh, you're going to cause uh, swelling in the lungs. You're going to cause fluids from the lungs to to accumulate in the sac around the lungs. Again, I'm not a forensic expert, so it's not my field. But I will tell you this, that the blood stains and other stains of that man's body on the shroud are 100% forensically accurate, and the blood got onto the shroud by direct physical contact. They are not painted on, and they are 100% accurate. And the expert forensic pathologists who studied the shroud, several of them, one of them, Dr. Robert Buckland, who was on our team, they made a TV show called Quincy, and he was the model for that character that was a medical examiner, and he was a consultant to the producers of that program. That's the high caliber of people who were on our team, not just some guy off the street. And so the forensic expert, and then Dr. Frederick Zugaby, uh, all these guys have passed away now, uh, he was the medical examiner in Rockland County, New York for 35 years, 25,000 autopsies under his belt. If it were a fake, he'd have known it before anybody else. And it's not a fake. And the bloodstains are authentic. So what we have on this cloth is a document of what was done to this man. And because of the historicity of Jesus and the things that have been reported and recorded in the Gospels, uh, the reason I believe that this is the burial shroud of the historic Jesus of Nazareth is because it's it's too perfect a match. It can't be anybody else in my mind. And of course, people have said, oh, well, they crucified somebody in medieval times and faked it out. Yeah, but that doesn't explain the image. So, you know, you can make up anything you want. Explain to me the image. I've looked at every effort to duplicate that image in, in the last 45 years. Most of the time they're using one of my photographs and then they send me the results to look at. No one's come close to matching the chemistry and physics that are documented on that cloth. And uh, go into the uh, uh, the pollen and, and soil samples found on the shroud. That was another that made my hair stand up. Well, look the the pollen samples. There've been studies done, but nothing formally in the peer reviewed scientific literature. Sadly, Max Fry, who did some of the pollen studies, died before he could publish his work. Uh, others have looked at it and had made claims for it, but because it's never had the veracity of being submitted for peer review in a credible uh, palynology journal, study of pollens, um, I, I look at that as anecdotal, and it certainly adds to the information that we have, but it doesn't have the same definitive um, answer, perhaps, as some of the other data that we have. But, yeah. uh, but with that, and, though, and, the allegation know, or the, this this man's, you know, independent testing, he, he had found soil and pollen samples that was only yeah, this, indigenous to Israel. Yeah, the soil uh, came from uh, Eugenia Natowski. She's the one who did it, uh, found this uh, limestone, aragonite, I believe it's called, in, in a uh, first century tomb in Jerusalem. Um, again, wasn't published in peer-reviewed journals. So... When you do science, 
the most credible way to do it is you submit it to a an appropriate journal of of a, an appropriate discipline relevant to what you're writing about, and other experts of that same discipline or similar disciplines can evaluate the work, and if it gets accepted and then published, they may ask you to make some corrections and changes. But that carries a lot more weight than me putting something on Shroud.com that I wrote that doesn't have the same veracity to the scientific community as something that's in a credible journal. Of course, now with the internet, there's a lot of journals that'll they'll take your bucks and they'll publish your work. And that the peer review is did the check clear to bank? So so you know there are there are levels of peer review. And if you look at the journals that our work was published in, applied optics, I mean it's very hard to get your work into journals of that nature. They're very high caliber journals, but in all fairness to the radiocarbon dating guys, their work was in nature, another one of those high ranking journals. So, you know, so in all fairness, I mean, I, I try and be fair in my assessment of these things. And people ask me, you know, why, why did they do what they did? Why did they conclude what they concluded? Why did they violate every protocol that they themselves had established that needed to be followed and then ignored all their own protocols? Why did they do that? Well, I, look, they used the shroud to promote their technology. And what better way than to say, look, we proved the shroud of Turin is a fake, knowing that's going to get banner headlines around the world, and that's exactly what happened. And today, if you read any articles about carbon dating, one of the first opening paragraphs is radiocarbon dating. You know, the thing that proved the Shroud of Turin was a fake. And they still use it to this day in articles, even if they're not about the Shroud, they remind people, ah, yeah, we proved it was a fake. Well, no, they didn't, actually. And we've now proven that they didn't prove anything. What they proved was they dated a repaired corner that had newer materials added into it. That's been determined. And there's now five peer-reviewed journal articles challenging that radiocarbon date. And I think we can finally say enough is enough. Let's set that aside. Perhaps a future radiocarbon dating, following the protocols, doing it correctly, taking a sample from more than one spot, which is bad science just to begin with. I've, I've spoken, you know, in front of many audiences, and I always ask, you know, are there any scientists in the group? Yeah. I said, what do you think uh, of, of what they did? They only took one sample, and they said, that's unheard of. That's the worst science they've ever heard. You never would just take one sample. You would take something from a corner somewhere else or anywhere else just to have a control sample to compare with. They never did that. And with carbon so, dating, too, I mean, honestly, I mean, I know that's the best we got. That gives us a, a shotgun approach, but that's, that's what it is at best. It's a shotgun because they'll under test the these right, bones like dinosaurs and stuff. Like you'll get, look, you know, under the right different dates, a thousand well, years I was, apart. I was just talking to a paleontologist two days ago, and he said, you can't use radiocarbon dating to date a dinosaur. Too old. That's good going back maybe 10,000 years or something. Radiocarbon dating has its limitations just like any other man-made technology. Um, it's quite good under the right circumstances. It can yield accurate dates, reasonably accurate dates. There's always a date range, so it's never as precise as, you know, having somebody's birth certificate in your hand. But I really want to get into some of the, the, the markings and the, the, the passion. Sure. Uh, I wrote down that he had said that there was over like 360 scourge marks and over 200 on the back. 
I mean, that's yeah. a beating. The max Severely. Jewish law, what was it, 40 lashes? 40 lashes, and they usually stopped at 39 just to be safe. Yeah, thir- yeah. Paul but talked about I got the, the full 39 plus one. Yeah, so here's the other thing. Based on what we see and based on what we know about Roman flagrams, and we don't have one that's definitively the one that would have been used on Jesus. We don't have a sample of that. But if you look at it, it's a, a three-thonged leather whip. So right off the bat, now you can divide by three that number. You see what I mean? Because you're hitting them three times at once. I bet so, it's again, like raw I, hamburger meat, you know? Uh, listen, it, you, and and to me, the definitive answer to, to it being legitimately a flogging is the fact that it's on the front of the body as well. No Christian artist has ever shown that because it's an artist interpretation. And they know they beat them severely from behind. That's what everybody would think. And so the artist depicted that. That's artistic license. But in the real world, no. In the real world, they they beat the heck out of him. And they would not have hit the front of the body unless this is for real. You know, no, no artist has ever even thought to do that. I, I've never seen one piece of Christian artwork depicting the crucifixion or the scourging of Jesus that shows him being struck in the front of his body. Not one. And yet the shroud definitely shows. And based on the numbers you gave me, that's like about a hundred of them on the front of the body. Yeah. And Andrew was talking about too, the, that they even studied like the angles of the whips and said that two, there was two men whipping Christ. One was taller and they stood on opposite sides. All this determined by the marks on the shroud. Correct. And, And again, I'm not, party to who made that determination probably one of the forensic guys yeah because you know guys that understand the the way wounds work and the way they would be on a body that's what a forensic uh, uh, person does so so that comes from uh, experts that are beyond my expertise Mm. well uh i'm I'm just quoting some of this stuff i guess from his stuff because i mean that's what i thought was really cool and then but she didn't give no references of the who was providing this information, but I thought it was just fascinating. Uh, they said the spots on the wrist where he was nailed, uh, there was two nerves that run through there and said one or once pierced would send shock waves of pain throughout the whole body. The shroud, the shroud, uh, aligns with that and that his thumbs were actually even curled in from the nail where it was. Yeah. That whole thumb business. That's a bit of a stretch. And I'll tell you why. Uh, if I stand up, and I'm going to do that just to demonstrate. I don't know if you can see it or not. Yeah. So look where my hand. Do you see my thumb? No. And it's just in a natural position. Okay. So the fact that we don't see thumbs isn't necessarily related to where that wound is. Because of the angle, we might not see the thumb just because of the angle of, of where the hands were over the body. So that's possible. And, you know, there's some data that's solid and there's some that's a little more speculative. And so perhaps that's in that category of being a little more speculative. Um, but here's the thing. Uh, the blood, the blood stain, all we see on the shroud is an exit wound, the back of the hand. So where did the wound go in? Now, of course, we believe that everything on the shroud is 100% accurate to the Gospels. 
So where in the hand do you think it might have gone in? Well, of course, artists have always depicted it here in the middle of the palm. Yeah, that can sustain the weight. He would just rip right out. But now look, I'm going to take my finger and my uh, little finger and my thumb, put them together. Notice this. That's called the thinner furrow. It's like a groove between the two fleshy parts of the palm. Now, if I'm a... If I'm a Roman soldier and I got to nail this guy to a cross, not a fun job to do under any circumstances, I can grab that hand and I've already put myself a perfect spot to put that nail in. And at an angle, it's going to come out exactly and precisely where we see the exit wound on the shroud. Now, people have said, well, it says the gospel's in the hand. Well, here's that spot. I'm going to leave my finger there. It's about one inch down from the center of my palm. It's still in the hand. So it doesn't violate what it says in the gospel's. And it makes sense that that would be, look, if that Roman soldier had a bunch of crucifixions to do today, you know, he's going to do it as quickly as he can. So he can do that, grab it. There's a spot for the nail, nail it through, done. And that's what we see on the shroud. So it's a hundred percent forensically accurate again. And he said that, uh, some medical professionals said like the scourgings were basically the, the equivalent of a third degree burn. So, I mean, you get sent to the hospital over one third degree burn. So over 360, uh, you go to the hospital for even a second and even sometimes a first degree burn, depending on where it is on your body. so. So just stop and think about that for a second, over 320 scourge marks, whip marks, and each one, the equivalent of a third degree burn there's no way you could even fathom the agonizing pain that Jesus had went through and like he said you know he stays in his lane if he's not expert on it he's not going to comment on it but I will I believe what Father Andrew said that it went through that part of the wrist and it might have went through the hand and through the wrist and hit that nerve and he was talking about how it just sends shock waves of pain throughout your entire body as you're hanging there. I mean, it's just mind-blowing, the, uh, the sufferings that Jesus Christ went through for us. I just wanted to point that out and just draw some emphasis on that point. So, yeah, no, I mean, it, look, many of the scourge wounds broke the skin and there's blood in them, not in all of them. Some of the scourge wounds show blood, some do not. So, look, just take a look at all of them, and you can realize how badly and severely beaten he was. The fact that he survived that at all, just that part of it, of the torture. And remember, they started beating him up the night before in the Garden of Gethsemane. His face is all swollen. One cheekbone swell up way more than the other one. You can see that clearly on the shroud. So the, the way I see it, Everything on the shroud is consistent with what is reported in the gospel accounts of what was done to Jesus. And remember, this is coming from a guy who's not a Christian. I, I don't have a horse in the race, effectively. and uh, But I have no doubt that uh, Jesus existed. And as I said before, you know, I can accept the historicity of that man and accept that we would have uh, an artifact of his. Uh, you know, I'm going to share a quick story with you. Um, a little Jewish mother was born in Poland, immigrated as a child, age seven, youngest of four kids. She finally got to hear uh, one of my lectures in person. I was going back to a high school reunion in Pittsburgh, my hometown. My friend said, why don't you give a shroud talk while you're in Pittsburgh? And I said, well, arrange something. The Archdiocese of Pittsburgh was kind, gave us a venue, 
put it in the bulletin and set it up. We went and my, my mother was there, my brother was there, my cousins were there, you know, family comes to hear me speak. We had a big crowd and it was wonderful. And, we, it, and we're driving home and my mother is silent. A brother, when a Jewish mother's silent, be afraid. <laughs> That's not a good sign. So I finally turned to her and I said, okay, because I, I didn't know what she was going to think about this. I mean, you know, we're, we're Jewish, we're not Christian, so uh, Jesus has a different significance in our lives as it would for any Christian. So I finally said to her, okay, so what do you think? And she turned to me and she said, well, of course it's authentic. It took me 17 years after leaving my DNA on the clock before I was convinced by the science. My mother hears one lecture, albeit from her son. I say, yeah, come from her son. Yeah. yeah, but the point is she hears one lecture. And so I said to her, Mother, what makes you say that? I was shocked. Not the answer I was expecting. And she looked at me, she said, in that tone of voice that moms can get, you know, very. They wouldn't have kept it for 2,000 years if it had belonged to anyone else. It wouldn't have mattered. And I thought, oh, that's cute. Until I thought of it. That piece of cloth violates two Jewish laws. There's an image forbidden by Jews and Muslims to this day. Has blood on it, supposed to be buried with the body. So you couldn't come running out of the tomb going to look what we found. Or you might be the next one on the cross. Somebody had to hide that. Somebody would have put themselves at great risk to preserve, to save, rescue that piece of cloth so that it wouldn't be destroyed. So my mother's observation turns out to be profoundly accurate in the sense that why would you keep a burial shroud? And for that matter, why would? how does a burial shroud get separated from a body? People have said to me, why don't we have other burial shrouds with images? Because a burial shroud is made of organic materials. It wraps an organic body and both decompose at the same time so that we only find bits and pieces of burial shrouds because they decomposed over time along with the body they wrapped. The shroud was separated from the body in about 36 hours. If you look at it, people say, well, it says three days in the Jewish calendar. Yeah, Friday afternoon. They wrapped them up and put them in before sunset, so Friday. All day Saturday, Sunday morning, the tomb gone. 36 hours, approximately. And there's no signs so of decomposition on the shroud either, so that correlates. Too, too, yeah, too early for any any liquid decomposition to show up. Now, as soon as we die, we start outgassing. Ammonia gas starts coming out of our nose and mouth. And eventually, as we begin, decomposition goes further and further. Uh, it beca becomes... Uh, cadaverine and putrescine, those are the horrible smell of death kind of thing. He wasn't in there long enough for that to happen. And we didn't find any uh, products of decomposition anywhere on that cloth. Fits with the Gospels. And what I love, too, is, you know, just honestly, your 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 honesty and your transparency, you know, we were even talking pre-roll, you know, and you said, yeah, I'm, I'm Jewish. And I was like, yeah, I had no idea. He's like, yeah. cause I mean, I, I had read that you were going in as a skeptic and mm -hmm. then you was made a believer. But then you told me you were well, Jewish. A believer, but let's qualify I mean, that. I, I mean, when I say believer, I don't mean believer in the faith. I mean, but, but yeah, some the people, historicity but, of the, the item that you were going to investigate. But, 
there are, there are articles on the internet that said that I've become a Christian or a Messianic Jew, which isn't true. Look, I serve God. Think, think about this. The skeptics always attack all the researchers who happen to be Christians. Said, well, of course, you're going to say that you're a Christian. The skeptics don't like to talk to me because they can't accuse me of having a Christian bias because I never had one. And so I can talk about this truthfully based on my experience, physical examination and everything else. And I don't have a bias in favor of this. I was a total skeptic at the beginning. It took 17 years after we finished before the evidence was adequate, the scientific evidence, where I had to say, you know what? All my questions have been answered. This has got to be an artifact of the historical Jesus of Nazareth. I don't have a problem with that. But a lot of people do. Some of them Christians even. That really shocks me at times where I find skeptics who are Christians. And, you know, hey, look, I'm not a minister, priest, or a rabbi. It's not my place to tell people how, how to believe or what to believe. I can tell you about a piece of cloth. I can tell you it's not a fake. It's not a painting. It's not a man-made artwork. People said, well, I've had uh, some Christians say to me, um, what's the word they use? Um, uh, golden calf. It's like the, the golden calf that it's a, uh, what's the word I'm looking for there? Idol? Rain. Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's an idol. And, and I always say, well, wait a minute. I'm Jewish. We had a golden calf cost us 40 years in the desert. We know what a, a, an idol is, okay? This is not one of those because our science has proven this is not an artwork. And all the idols, including that golden calf, were man-made, manufactured by human hands. The shroud is not. But I believe there was some interaction between a cloth and the body, and I think that's the only way we can get some of the properties of that image. And uh, But, you know, we have no way to prove that yet. But believe it or not, there's some experiments that are in the planning stages that might take us that, a step closer to answering that question. And, and people said, well, a chemical reaction isn't miraculous enough. Are you kidding me? God can do anything he wants any way he wants to. In God's universe, if he wants to make an image on a piece of linen, I don't think he has to stretch hard to figure out how. He can do it any way he wants. And if he's created a mechanism in the natural world, the world that he's given us, um, then he can put an image on a sheet of linen. It might baffle us, but no problem for God. Well, I so, you know, the way the creator of the universe in such a small box. And it's like, no, you either believe the science or you believe God or you believe the science, you believe the faith. And it's like, well, the, you the know, God of the Bible created I, science as a, I, my opinion, as a way for us to, to communicate well, and see th and understand him. You know, why I can't he it. use the elements that he created? Sure. Yeah. It makes sense. Doesn't it? I, use, I did a Ted talk in the Vatican. First one that's ever been done in the Vatican. I was one of many, but I, I was on the agenda there. And I get quoted. There was something I said in that TED Talk that gets quoted from me from that talk more than about anything else. I said that I didn't see a conflict between science and faith. I see science as man's attempt to understand God's creation. And God gave us that ability. So why shouldn't we use it and try to understand what's going on around us? If he didn't want us to have those questions, he wouldn't have given us that capacity. I agree 100%. That's what I was trying to articulate there. You've done it a lot better. Well, I've had 45 years of practice. <laughs> I've been thinking about this for a while. <laughs> and, and, and especially because I play a somewhat unique role in all this, being kind of the odd man out. 
And people say, well, you're a Jew. Why are you involved? And I go, it's a Jewish sheriff burial shroud of a Jewish man. So it makes sense that a couple of us are represented on that team. And we did good work. And we had showed the appropriate love and respect for an object of faith. We understood that right from the get-go, that anything we did was going to be scrutinized 10 times greater than anybody else's science because of the subject matter. And that made us even more careful and more respectful of the object we were examining. So is the Vatican, uh, you think, going to allow a, a second testing since the first one was kind of debacled? Well, the first testing, you're talking about radiocarbon dating. Yeah. Because our testing, we weren't given permission by the Vatican. I thought our they owned it. Okay. So who owned the Shroud in 1978? King Umberto II of the Savoy family that had owned the Shroud for over 500 years. It was King Umberto who gave us permission to examine the Shroud. He's the legal owner at that moment in history. He was the legal owner. The Vatican had nothing to do with it. The people in Turin are known as the custodians of the Shroud, but they're not the owners of it. So when the king said, let these Americans in, they were not happy about it in Turin. I don't blame them. I can understand why they be a little upset they were never given that permission but it was king umberto who gave us permission now the radiocarbon dating is a different subject that by then uh, in 1983 king umberto died and i think took two years to probate his will he decided not to leave it to his son which had been a family tradition for five centuries he, he decided to leave it not to the church, which would mean 130 cardinals would have to vote. That wouldn't be very practical. One did leave it to one man, left it to the living pope at that moment was uh, John Paul II. And so the living pope is the legal owner of the shroud since 1985. So any future testing has to come from him with his permission. But what we did prior was thanks to King Umberto who gave it. And, and look, there's still some old timers in Turin, in the Turin uh, center there, that are still a bit resentful that they were not given that opportunity that we were given. And, you know, I can kind of understand how they feel. I mean, this is their baby in their backyard. And all of a sudden, a bunch of Americans from big name laboratories show up. I, I can see where they'd be a little resentful of that. But, you know, it's 45 years later, it's, didn't Jesus talk about forgiveness? Uh, come on, don't be mad at us. We did what we were, you know, uh, chartered to do, which is to go there, collect the best data possible to show the most utmost care to make sure we caused no harm and, and did no damage to that cloth. Um, they were worried about us. When the shroud was on public display before we got to, uh, we got to turn, it was still on public display. When they took it off public display and brought it to the Royal Palace for us to examine it, <laughs> they had to take it off the piece of wood. They had thumbtacked it onto a sheet of wood for public display. Mm. We built a steel table with removable panels because we were going to do x-rays. You can't have steel there. Removable panels. We had to design and fabricate and build this huge steel table big enough to support the shroud with magnets around the periphery. And the magnets were all coated with Teflon so as to leave no metal particulates anywhere on the cloth. 
I mean, and they thumbtacked it to a piece of wood. And they were worried about us. Yeah. So sadly, you know, the story can go on and on. I mean, I, you know, it's it's much more complicated than people realize. Uh, not long ago, Joe Marino, a well-known trout scholar, and one of the two people who proposed that reweaving theory initially, um, he called me up. He's on my board of directors and, and a great researcher on his own right and writer. And uh, he said, I'm working on a paper. I'm going to make a list of all the disciplines or sub-disciplines that have been involved in the study of the shroud. And I said, oh, well, that part's got to be at least 30 different disciplines. He's at about 105 different disciplines in that article. So that tells you how complex a subject matter the shroud is. It isn't just about the image, and it isn't just about the chemistry, and it isn't about the physics. It's about all of the above and more stuff than you could ever imagine. And that's why shroud.com has grown into the monstrous website that it has, because we try and collect and archive all those materials. That's That was one of the reasons I built the website. Here I am, a guy with access to all the scientific data from the STIRP team. The general public, on the other hand, they didn't read scientific journals, especially back in the late 70s, early 80s. You'd have to go to some research library at a university, and maybe they have that journal, maybe they don't. Now with the internet, I was able to collect all these materials and put them all on our website. There's no advertising on our website. We don't use cookies. We don't use trackers. We don't monetize our visitors. You go to our website. You are anonymous unless you choose to join our mailing list. And then you only need an email address. You don't even have to put your name there. We do not sell the list. We do not share the list. What we do is my goal was to give you the audience, if you will, access to the same data that convinced me a non-christian has got to be the real thing and so that's the purpose of the website to preserve the work and to make it readily available so that anyone who's interested can study the shroud and then make up their own mind and maybe the smartest thing i ever wrote is on the front page of shroud.com in that opening paragraph there's a sentence that says we believe that given the facts you have to make up your own mind about this and maybe that's why the website's been successful because we're not preaching. We're saying, here's the evidence. Make up your own mind. You decide. That's what we had to do. We had to collect this data and study it and draw conclusions from it and then decide what we believe based on that evidence. And everyone needs to have access to that same data. And look, being in that room for five days and nights was a privilege. And with that privilege came an obligation. I wasn't there for me, brother. I was there for you. I was there to collect that material and ultimately to make it available so that people of the faith or others who are interested would have free access to all of this material. And that's why I gave up the ownership of the photography and the website. It all belongs to the nonprofit now. We don't monetize our visitors. I get a monthly salary from the nonprofit because I work 12 hours a day, seven days a week, and I deserve a monthly salary. <laughs> and that's it. And all the money goes to the nonprofit, not to me. And, and so the website is the fulfillment of the obligation that came with the privilege of being in that room. And uh, I'm sure I speak for everybody. I, we're extremely thankful that you did. And I mean, that's, that's so important because, and Honestly, if you break it down to like a, a microcosm, that's what apologetics should be. 
you ask the important questions, you present the, the evidence and findings, and you let the people make up the, their own mind because that's the only way it's going to stick. Look, Jesus said the kingdom of God is within us. That means that all this external stuff is meaningless. It's what you decide in your heart. That's what God knows. That's what Jesus knows. That's what matters. And you don't need to be a Christian to understand that. That's awesome. Barry, I really appreciate it, man. You've uh, really uh, laid it out good. And, and like I said, I'm glad that you've done what you've done. You put it on the website and you've, and you've put all this information out there for those that that want to know it, it's there and I'm yeah. thankful for it. So there you have it. A, a skeptic goes in, documents it, photographs it, makes up his own mind and walks out believing that this is a historical document. And this was the, uh, the burial cloth of Jesus of Nazareth. Pretty amazing stuff. But Barry was just an awesome guy. We talked for, at least another hour i'm gonna maybe get his permission see if i can release that for maybe like behind the scenes extra content for you guys because we had some really good conversations even after this but yeah just all around great guy enjoyed the conversation and learning all the the things that he had found out and all his documentation and the website this was just a really enlightening conversation and i really appreciated the time hope you guys did hope you enjoyed it see you back next week but until then Torch is high.